The 2016 Republican primary toboggan ride is rapidly approaching the oak tree of their summer convention. Because it really is, isn't it? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Ohio, in Columbus, on WGRN 94.1 FM, The Green Renaissance. And up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, The Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly. FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee. And blanketing the earth five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast, Your Light in the Darkness. Glad you could join us. Big news, Ted Cruz and John Kasich are joining forces to take on Donald Trump. It's like Superman and Batman joining together to take on the Joker once and for all, except that it's really not like that in the least, is it? <laughs> it's, in fact, uh, the reports that have been coming in since late last night about this, about Cruz and Kasich teaming up to finally take down Trump uh, are much less, I think, uh, than meets the eye. I, I really do... Even though the uh, the media have been, you know, going crazy because, you know, it's a story about Donald Trump in any way, shape or form. So we've got to cover it breathlessly and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, the, the headlines all day and all night since late night Sunday on this have been insane. So. Uh, we'll talk to Salon.com's Amanda Marcotte about it and about what I this new play really is or isn't momentarily. Uh, we haven't been talking much lately about the Republican nomination mess because it frankly, to me, it just it seems insane. And it's sucking up so much of the mainstream corporate media oxygen that we don't really need to cover it here in general. We've been focusing more on. Uh, well, on things that matter, including, by the way, the Bernie and Hillary fight of late, which deserves much more coverage than it has received over this entire cycle. And then there are the stories that uh, have been getting no media coverage at all amidst all the noise and madness of the of the presidential campaign, even though these stories are arguably much more important than the presidential race is, in truth. One of those stories took place too quietly on Friday, on Earth Day. 
And Desi Doyen, I know this is a story of keen interest to you. Yes, and it should be a story of keen interest to anything and everybody that's alive. It should, <laughs> but it's not. And not only to people who are alive, but people who are yet to be alive. They, too, should be interested in this story. Uh, leaders from 175 countries signed the Paris Agreement on Climate Change on Friday as the landmark deal took a key step forward, potentially entering into force years ahead of schedule, says AP. This is very good news. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, holding his young granddaughter, joined dozens of other world leaders for a signing ceremony that set a record for international diplomacy. Never have so many countries signed an agreement on the first available day. States that don't sign or didn't sign on Friday have a year to do so. U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon told the gathering that we are in a race against time. Many now expect the climate agreement to enter into force long before the original deadline of 2020. Some say it could happen this year. Yeah, it's actually pretty stunning, I would say. Um, now, now, what this is, is mm -hmm. that the for the agreement to come into force, mm -hmm. 55 countries representing 55 percent of global emissions must join, ratify mm -hmm. and and actually present a document to the United Nations, some document mechanism of some kind saying, OK, we haven't just signed here because that was really just a symbolic signing ceremony. We are here's our piece of paper showing we are officially joined to this. And once that 55 countries, 55 percent emissions threshold is meet is met, then it comes into force. The World Resources Institute found that at least 20 25 countries representing 45 percent of global emissions joined the agreement on Friday or committed uh, to joining it early. Yeah, they actually did the official ratification and joining part. But uh, but the U.S., we're not going to ratify this. We can sign it. I guess John Kerry signed it on behalf of the uh, the president who was out and about traveling yes. the world. But so we're not going to sign it. I mean, we're not going to ratify it. At least the, the Senate is not going to ratify it. There's no way we will get this treaty uh, passed this particular Republican-controlled Senate. That is correct. Now, the agreement was purposely designed, purposely written with an eye to what the Republicans in the U.S. Senate would do. So, first of all, it is voluntary. There are no punitive measures. There's not legally binding bylaw. There are mechanisms in it that are. But it's voluntary. There are no domestic U.S. laws that have to be changed for the United States to join this agreement. So that's one way that uh, the United States Senate does not have to deal with this. Also, President Obama is going to sign this using executive agreement, and that allows him also to avoid bringing it to the Senate. And executive agreement is very, very common in foreign agreements. This is constantly used by all presidents throughout modern history. It's called so, executive agreement? Executive agreement is what it's called. So it's really common. It's, it's uh, of course, Republicans will probably find a way to deny that anyway. But um, this is something that since we can go ahead and meet our emissions pledges without any changes to domestic laws, we can do that through the the clean power plan and and remember by the way on this and we'll talk very uh, shortly about the specifics of this agreement what it's meant to do but china who republicans have been spending years you know telling us would never agree to curb emissions right. 
Uh, they are the world's top carbon emitter. They announced that it will, final, quote, finalize uh, domestic procedures to ratify the Paris Agreement before the G20 summit in uh, in China in September. Yes, and the so U.S. and board. China. Yeah, they're on board. They're, it is happening. And China doesn't say stuff like this and then pull out of it. So another aspect of this is that once this agreement does come into force um, and once it the, the 55 threshold is met, mm-hmm. um, once it comes into force, no one can get out of the agreement for four years. Years. Right. No country can withdraw. So that means that even if a Republican president gets elected and tries to pull out, they would have to wait for four years, assuming that the agreement reaches the threshold prior to the end of Obama's term. Right. He's got to sign it. He's got to have it. He's got to ratify it before he leaves office in some Right. Fashion. And so does China, which they're going to. And so does, you know, enough other uh, countries, which it looks like the U- European Union will probably have all of their different member company countries go through that mechanism of ratification in time. So this might actually work. But if the U.S. signs, so if he signs it before he leaves office, the next president, even though it's an executive agreement, the next president still has to uh, has to honor this agreement, no matter yes. who it is, yeah. even if it is Donald Trump. Exactly. Wow. So it's pretty cool. Uh, the analysis of this, basically, uh, it's, it's all of these countries, and correct me if I've got this right, Des, uh, all of these countries who are signatories to this uh, agreement put forward voluntary uh, plans and right. it's our clean uh, clean pl- what's it called clean, clean power plan clean that's power just one plan. of our mechanisms that's in but yeah the US. it's an important one uh, but they all have uh, similar plans uh, like that to curb their own emissions voluntarily right. in hopes of keeping global warming below two degrees, but even better, uh, one and a half degrees uh, Celsius. Celsius. Right. right. And that's, well, two degrees Celsius is about a little bit more than three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. But the latest uh, analysis by the Climate Interactive Research Group shows that pe- the Paris pledges put the world on track right now for three and a half degrees Celsius of warming. Another, uh, another analysis, uh, a European group projected 2.7 degrees Celsius. That is... If the the countries follow the agreements that they have, have given at Paris, we're that's, still not going to meet that target. That's correct. The Paris Agreement is not enough. And everybody knew that when they signed it. So that's why it has built-in mechanisms starting in 2018 to uh, do a, a stock-taking moment and then a ratcheting up plan. So they're going to have to report what they've done so far and tell what they're going to do next and increase their ambition, increase their targets. And that's going to happen every five years. So there are mechanisms within to tighten this and make it go even further. And I will say that reality is actually joining in and helping on this. China pledged to peak their emissions no later than 2030. They're now saying they're probably going to make that by 2025, possibly even earlier. Uh, more reality involved with this uh, global energy, which is helping out global energy emissions, uh, which the biggest source of man-made greenhouse gases were flat last year. So they didn't shrink, but they also didn't grow, even though the global economy grew. Normally, they, emissions go up when the economy right. improves. So the uh, International e- Energy Agency says somehow, somehow we managed to grow the economy without growing our carbon emissions over the past year. And that's huge. 
showing that it can be done, that economic growth can occur. And of course, we know this, that renewable energy is going to be the very big, the next big thing happening across the global economy. So as more countries are catching on to this and developing more renewable energy, we are seeing the decoupling of emissions from the economy. That is very good news indeed. And it is news that uh, pretty much nobody I I saw talking about it in the media, at least in the corporate mainstream media, as they're fixated on... uh, on presidential politics. Another story that will likely be lost today uh, is that it was a very big weekend for freedom and liberty in these locked and loaded states of America, particularly in pro-gun, I mean pro-freedom states that are run by Republicans. The headlines, uh, frankly, are amazing, and I I shouldn't even be light about this, but uh, the fact that we had this type of a weekend uh, and it doesn't seem to matter. It the, the, OK, here's some of the headlines. They've been overshadowed, uh, completely overshadowed uh, nationally. Uh, just a few of the stories from over the weekend. Uh, autopsies have now been completed in shooting massacre that killed eight Ohio relatives. That shooting took place on Friday. Medical teams on Monday finished the autopsies of eight family members who were shot and killed in a total of four different homes in southern Ohio on Friday. Uh, Officials revealed the investigation had uncovered three marijuana-growing operations related here. Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine, big gun supporter, loves him, said this was a pre-planned execution of eight individuals. It was a sophisticated operation, and those who carried it out were trying to do everything they could to hinder the investigation and their prosecution. The Attorney General had previously said Each relative apparently was shot in the head. None of the shootings appeared to be suicide. Uh, This family has now been uh, advised by the uh, Pike County Sheriff uh, to be very, very careful, obviously, uh, that they could be in danger as this uh, this shooter is still at large today somewhere. Well, presumably in Ohio, but who knows where. So eight uh, eight people killed in that mass shooting in four different homes on Friday. On Saturday, uh, yeah, Saturday, five people are uh, were shot dead in two shootings in Georgia. The daughter of a, of a Georgia man suspected of shooting five people to death before killing himself says her father was a ticking time bomb. Lauren Hawes told uh, told the AP on Saturday that she and her one year old daughter hid in a neighbor's house while her father went on a, a shooting rampage that killed five people, including her grandmother and cousin. On Saturday, again on Saturday, uh, according to police, three were killed in Alabama nightclub shootings. Police in Alabama are investigating shooting at a nightclub that left three dead. Uh, Shooting happened around 2 a.m. Saturday at a club in Auburn. Shots were still being fired when police arrived. Police investigators told the station that the three men, ages 25, 29, and 43, were found dead at the scene. A fourth person, a 23-year-old man, was taken to East Alabama Medical Center. He is expected to recover. Yeah, I'm not even. I'm not even halfway through the weekend. Uh, <laughs> on uh, on Sunday, uh, we heard from authorities that an 18-year-old gunman opened fire outside of a high school prom in northern Wisconsin, wounding two students before a police officer who was in the parking lot fatally shot him. The attack happened late on Saturday outside the Antigo High School prom. 
uh, said the chief of police in Antigua, a community of about 8,000 people, roughly 150 miles north of Milwaukee uh, in, uh, in Governor Scott Walker's Wisconsin. Roller said the gunman, uh, later identified as Jacob Wagner, shot the two students as they exited the building. He didn't say if investigators believe they were specifically targeted or discuss a possible motive for that attack. Uh, happily, that one, uh, the female victim was treated and released, and the male victim was undergoing surgery for injuries that were not life-threatening, according to police. So there's some... Uh, Good news from amidst this very, very dark news. And finally, and, and, you know, and, and the, this is just a sampling. This is just a sampling of what goes on in uh, in these United States these days. And not only is it a sampling of what goes on, it's a sampling of the fact that uh, we have these mass shootings one after another after another, and they barely even make the news anymore nationally. All right. In Arizona, two police officers were in stable condition uh, on Sunday with one in surgery, and the uh, suspect is dead in that shooting following a, uh, a shooting Saturday at a Walmart in suburban Phoenix. Police were called around 6.30 a.m. about a trespasser at the store. Chandler police spokesman uh, Seth Tyler said, The officers encountered the unidentified male suspect at the front of the store, just past the greeters area. According to witnesses, the first officer entered the store and was fired upon immediately by the suspect. The second officer, who was in close proximity, was also shot but was able to return fire. Both were wearing bulletproof vests. Uh, and they, uh, as I say, are in stable conditions. Just another weekend in these great uh, United States of America. Uh, you know, and, and, and these are the ones I, I just happened to come across as I was uh, combing the news uh, over the weekend and today. I suspect there were many, many more. And, and really, it's, you know, it's not the numbers in one sense. It's not the numbers. It's the fact that this has just become so routine. Uh, we don't even think about it. We don't even care. Oh, eight were killed. Oh, five were killed. Three uh, people were killed at a prom. A couple of officers shot at a Walmart. Oh, well. Just amazing to me. Just anyway. All right. Uh, speaking of amazing to me and arguably, well, I was going to say arguably much uh, more amusing, but we'll see how amusing this is. This announcement between uh, Ted Cruz and John Kasich that they are going to take on Donald Trump. They're going to team up. They're going to finally the never Trump movement has finally found the winning combination. Uh, they are going to stop Trump with this uh, grand scheme that they have put together over the weekend that, uh, as it turns out, is mm, probably not all that grand at all. We will find out. We'll speak with Amanda Marcotte, who wrote about this at Salon today, find out what is really going on and if this is just more of the uh, Republican Party kidding themselves about their future and about Donald Trump's inevitable march it seems inevitable at this time uh, to the nomination in Cleveland. Can it be stopped? And even if they do stop it, by the way, even if they do keep him from getting 12,000, uh, whatever, uh, 1,237 delegates that are needed to win on the first ballot. Um, what, all of those uh, Donald Trump supporters are just going to roll over and allow anyone else to march on in and become the uh, the nominee? We'll talk about all of that and much more with Amanda Marcotte right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> 
Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Yes, we are. Haven't visited this crazy train in a while. We haven't been uh, speaking much about the GOP race because, frankly, it is so indescribably ridiculous. Uh, In one sense, it doesn't even seem worth our time here. On the other hand, it's so indescribably ridiculous that uh, I think we need to talk about it because it's going to result in one of the two major parties for president of the United States. Uh, one of the party's nominees becoming Donald Trump, for Christ's sakes, or pretty much just as absurdly, Ted Cruz, maybe, somehow. I don't see that happening. But in any event, uh, I guess we do need to talk about it uh, from time to time here as we uh, near what could be an indescribably insane Republican convention this July in Cleveland. Welcome back, by the way. This is the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you. Uh, Okay, well, to that end, as... uh, As Trump continues sailing towards the nomination, as the Republican Party continues to devise new ways to try and stop him, good luck with that, from achieving the uh, 1,237 delegates he'll need to wrap up the nomination on the first ballot at the convention and avoid a contested mess there. Simon Malloy over at Salon interviewed Bruce Bartlett today. Uh, Bartlett is a longtime dyed-in-the-wool Republican. He's a former top Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush uh, administration official who correctly has long understood that his party has gone completely over the edge. Nonetheless, Bruce Bartlett of the Reagan administration voted for Donald Trump in the recent Virginia primary. And Simon Malloy asked him about that at Salon. Bartlett's response for why he did this, he said, quote, I think the Republican Party is sick. It's dying. It just doesn't know it. And I think anything that speeds up its demise is to the good because then it can reinvent itself and return as something healthy. Or you could use an addiction metaphor where people have to hit bottoms so that they can reach out and ask for help before they can cure themselves. I think Trump is a symptom of a disease of rampant stupidity, pandering to morons and bigots and racists and all sorts of stuff that defines today's Republican coalition. 
and I think it's awful. It's terrible for the country in a great many ways that I don't need to tell you, and I think we need to have a healthy two-party system. We need to have a sane, functioning conservative party and a sane, functioning liberal party, and I think that half of that equation, at least, is not working, and it affects the other half. Uh, He says, but I also don't think it really makes all that much difference whether Trump gets the nominee because he's already succeeded in destroying the Republican coalition as far as the general election is concerned. Because, look, if he doesn't get the nomination, he'll probably do everything in his power to guarantee that whoever does get the nomination is defeated. So either way, the party is looking at historic losses, historic defeat. And he adds, I think that is really, really a wonderful thing. Wow. Well, okay, that's one way to deal with the uh, problem, hasten the demise of the party, if that's what will actually happen. And then last night, uh, my iPhone alerts started going crazy. I started getting these alerts. Ted Cruz and John Kasich are forming an, uh, an alliance to take on Donald Trump. Huge news. Everybody was covering it. Um, okay. While both Ted Cruz and John Kasich have all but written off uh, the five states that will hold primaries uh, this Tuesday in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, Rhode Island and Delaware, where Trump is beating both of them soundly in uh, in pre-election polls, Cruz and Kasich uh, have a plan, I guess, for a few upcoming states beyond those five that will be uh, coming up on Tuesday. Politics writer uh, for Salon, Amanda Marcotte, who has previously contributed to Slate, Raw Story, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, The L.A. Times and many others, wrote about this new coalition where Ted Cruz and John Kasich are joining forces in their last ditch effort to defeat Donald Trump uh, and keep him from winning the Republican nomination. Uh, So, uh, well, let's let's talk about what this uh, What this scheme is, what this plan is, can it possibly work any better than any other scheme the Republican Party has come up with so far to try to derail Donald Trump? Amanda Marcotte, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, You bet. Okay, uh, this is... Hopefully you you can help me make sense of what's going on. Uh, so uh, this is it. This is the, the, the latest big plan. Apparently they're going to, what, Cruz is going to focus on Indiana. Kasich is going to devote his efforts to Oregon and New Mexico. And somehow that is magically going to change the equation here. You described it today at Salon as, quote, comically pathetic. So explain what this plan is, and then we can discuss how comically pathetic it is or isn't, uh, and if it can possibly work to stop Donald Trump's uh, inevitable and mind-blowing march to the Republican nomination for president of the United States. It's a real simple plan, actually. Uh, Kasich is going to agree not to campaign anymore in Indiana. In exchange, Cruz is not going to campaign in Oregon and New Mexico. And the hope is that by doing this, Kasich voters will switch over to Cruz in Indiana and vice versa in Oregon and New Mexico, shutting Trump out of winning. These are winner-take-all states, and therefore, just by making sure that somebody that's not Trump wins, they can kind of forestall him getting to the 1237 delegates he needs to get more than half of the delegates. That That's the magic number that many observers believe will make it impossible for him to... To, for the Republican Party to shut him out of getting the nomination. So that's the plan. They're just not going to campaign in hopes that the voters will make the choice that they want them to. 
So, so Ted Cruz is uh, telling everyone to vote for John Kasich in those states, and John Kasich is telling everyone they should vote for Ted Cruz in, in Indiana? No, they're not even going that far. That's how dumb this plan is. <laughs> they're not taking their name off the ballot or doing anything that might actually cause anyone to change their vote. They're just not campaigning in each other's chosen states. Um, you know, it might take a little bit more of a push than that, but already reporters on the ground in Indiana have been finding that case, even when you tell Kasich supporters about the plan, they just sort of look at you blankly and they're like, I'm going to vote for the candidate I prefer. Well, and apparently that's what John Kasich wants. Uh, uh, today, even though they, you know, the, both of their campaigns came out and sort of announced this strategy, uh, uh, I guess late last night, he was asked, Kasich was asked about this and he said, quote, uh, about his own uh, supporters in Indiana. He said, quote, they ought to vote for me. I'm not campaigning in Indiana and he's not campaigning in those other states. That's all. It's not a big deal. So yeah. I, is is I haven't gotten to do the math, uh, Amanda Marcotte, but uh, even if their plan works as they hope, uh, or as at least their their campaign managers say they hope, would there be enough numbers to stop that magical uh, 1,237 delegates uh, in Cleveland with this with this little plan? I, I don't see how it would work. Um, Trump. It is true that Trump and Cruz are running tightly in Indiana, but it's not like that tight. It's like a six seven point spread. So, you know, for this plan to work in Indiana, it would require a, a pretty significant chunk of Kasich supporters. I, I, you know, it would be, I guess, at least one in four, probably more Kasich supporters would have to switch their votes to Cruz. Um, I don't see that happening. That That's, I, I think, you know, it, even if there isn't a lot of Kasich campaigning going on in Indiana, most people have decided already, um, you know, a few ads, Taking a few ads off the air, a few fewer people knocking doors. At this late in the game, I just don't see how it, it switches things. And the reason that Indiana is the big state is because it actually has a a pretty significant delegate count. If Cruz could shut Trump out there, you know, it, it might be the deciding factor in keeping Trump from quite getting to that twelve thirty seven. Well, uh, Trump, who, for his part, has been spending the last week or so telling us all how presidential he is uh, going to be. And in fact, at his victory speech in New York, he he didn't refer to uh, Ted Cruz as Lion Ted. He called him Senator Cruz. The media made a, uh, you know, the corporate media in any event made much of that, showing us how Donald Trump is pivoting, uh, you know, to 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 the general election to be uh, more presidential. But then after this uh, arrangement was announced last night, uh, Donald Trump took to Twitter and said, wow, just announced that Lion Ted and Kasich are going to collude in order to keep me from getting the Republican nomination. Desperation. So it seems that presidentialness was all but over. And then he issued a, a longer statement talking about how uh, this represents, you know, collusion once again in the Republican Party to Washington insiders reverting to collusion in order to stay alive. Doesn't this actually help to underscore Trump's argument that the process is being rigged against him when you only have uh, two other candidates and they, they're both colluding against him? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And, and what amazes me about this is that was entirely predictable. 
for weeks now, Donald Trump has been running around the country claiming that he's a victim of an elite conspiracy to shut him out of his rightful nomination. And by virtue of that, shut out all the people who voted from him from having a say in the process, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and conservatives are particularly ready to hear this because they've been hearing from talk radio shows and whatever for decades now how they are the victims of an elite conspiracy. So, you know, an elite liberal conspiracy, but that kind of rhetoric transfers to the Republican Party just very easily. And here they have come out and with great fanfare announced that they are conspiring against him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, he's been saying you're conspiring against him, and you are. And and there is evidence that this conspiracy theory, which I, I hesitate to even call a conspiracy theory because it's real. It's a conspiracy. Um, it's not a theory. Yeah. It's an actual conspiracy this time. Exactly. This conspiracy is helping Trump in the polls because, you know, a lot of people who are maybe Trump skeptical don't like seeing somebody, you know, get robbed that way. Mm-hmm. Do, do they have a plan? And the, this this uh, scheme, this conspiracy, if you will, involves Indiana, New Mexico and Oregon. That's it. But uh, is there anything beyond that? I have seen no discussion, you know, California out here. Uh, our presidential primary is on June 7th. That is really the biggest uh, electoral uh, or delegate prize. Is is there is somehow California a part of, of the plan, or is that it? They've got these three states. That's the plan for now. We'll figure out the rest later. I think that the latter. This is clearly a poorly thought-out plan. And, and I mean, I, I'm not surprised because it came from the Kasich camp and not the Cruz camp. Mm-hmm. You know, at least Cruz puts a little bit more thought into these things. But it seems like the case at camp is particularly bad about spitballing and thinking that that's how you run a campaign. It's kind of amazing that his ego must be so enormous to think that he can just be so incompetent and yet somehow he still has a chance. (laughs) Right. I mean, really, John Kasich is sort of in this race because all of the other candidates, because he hasn't had to drop out. All of the other candidates like uh, Bush and and, and Walker, uh, who else, Chris Christie, they all had a bunch of a lot of funding from Republican donors. And when they failed to do well in uh, in in the primaries and so forth against Donald Trump, the the funders said, well, you know, we're not going to fund you guys anymore. And that was, you know, embarrassing. And the campaigns can't continue without the funding. But Kasich never had that funding in the first place. I mean, isn't he really in this just because he was kind of the biggest loser from the beginning in one sense? <laughs> Yeah, he really is, and it's interesting. He I, he really does seem to believe if he hangs in and doesn't try too hard and wait mm-hmm. at the convention, like everyone will just suddenly see the light and hand him the nomination. I, that's the only thing that makes any sense that he thinks that. But there's been some, you know, on the ground reporting that says he's not even trying to win over the delegates that are still up in the air. He hasn't been calling them. He hasn't been asking them for their vote. He just seems to think they will suddenly all see the light at once, and I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and I think that made him easy to exploit by the Cruz campaign, who was like, yeah, <laughs> uh, don't campaign against us in Indiana, and wink, wink, you know? Well, yeah, well, because he's, for one thing, Casey's getting uh, creamed, uh, according to the pre-election polls, in Indiana, and I guess uh, his 13% or whatever he's polling, if somehow that goes to Cruz, 
I guess that would give Trump a I'm sorry, that would somehow give Cruz the the edge over Trump. But uh, Amanda Marcotte, uh, this all of this, this sickness that uh, uh, Bruce Bartlett was talking about, as as I read in the opening there, this this all this is not really about Donald Trump, isn't is it? I mean, this is a problem. Uh, of the Republican or of Republicanism in general. You point in your article uh, at Salon on this brilliant scheme today. Uh, you point to Paul Ryan, uh, you know, the party saver, Paul uh, savior, Paul Ryan, uh, and the problems that he's having as Speaker of the House dealing with what are now the ridiculous expectations of the Republican Party there. Even Paul Ryan can't seem to herd the cats uh, in the of the Republican Party in the U.S. House. Uh, Tell us about what what Ryan is facing, what he is having to deal with now. Uh, And he's the non insane guy, as they tell us. Yeah, he was brought in as some sort of savior figure to replace John Boehner, who was not a very good speaker of the House either. And I'm just talking about simple competence here. Right. Not in terms of ideology. Couldn't get anything done. And Ryan is even worse. <laughs> he, and, and the only reason he kind of came in was because everyone else was even worse. Like, mm-hmm. it is a complete tornado of incompetence and, and lack of leadership skills. And I think that's because the Republicans decade a couple decades ago kind of quit prioritizing that and as the sort of churn of politics has gotten new blood in it and all that what has happened is generation after generation and in in political terms of people just kind of filling these offices based on their right-winginess which is (laughs) you know often based on their lack of attachment to reality Right. right yeah um they've all filled these offices and now the Republican Party has a bunch of ideologues but they don't have anybody who knows how to do anything like basic politics basic governance you know I don't think it's a um, necessarily in all these cases a choice not to I think it's that they really can't and the evidence for this is that Ryan does try to organize his party and he fails you know Ted Cruz and John Kasich are trying to run for president. They're just bad at it. Mm. Um, you know, Donald Trump is one of the luckiest people alive because he just sort of wandered into the situation where everyone else is so bad, he just sort of looks good in comparison. Well, I would I would argue he is good in that, uh, you know, and we, on this show, and I think we had uh, uh, Heather Digby Parton on the very first day when, when Donald Trump announced and last, uh, when was it, last July or uh, last summer, and everyone else was saying it was a joke, he's not going to do well. And uh, Digby and I both agreed that's not the case, that, you know, he has sort of cracked the code for running as a Republican. He basically says to them what, you know, he hears on Fox News. And because these voters have heard it on Fox News and on talk radio, it rings true to them and it works and it did work. And uh, but that is, I think, the disease of the Republican Party. Uh, You cite, you know, Paul Ryan trying to deal with that, uh, you know, in in the House. You cite uh, Ed Kilgore and and David Dayen uh, and some of their reporting. We've had uh, David on many times on this show talking about the fact that Ryan, that when he came in, he sort of had an agreement, which was 
put everything off. All of these things, you uh, crazy right-wingers uh, in, in my party want, let's just put it off. Let's just get to November. We'll get a, a Republican president. We'll have a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and then we can do all of these things. But And, and they sort of went along with that. But in the meantime, uh, as Kilgore notes, all of these emergencies came out, uh, the Puerto Rican debt crisis, the Zika crisis, the Flint water poisoning disaster, the opioid epidemic, uh, trying to pass a, a, you know, a simple budget at this point. They can't do any of those things. And it's because it seems to me it's a broken party. Do you think that uh, Bartlett's uh, contention that a Trump nomination will uh, make the broken state of the party so clear that somehow thereafter the party will rebuild itself? No. <laughs> I can say just flat, though. I mean, I can understand the appeal of that argument, but that's like the old school, like, um, he would probably hate this, but that's the old Marxist heightening the uh, contradictions rhetoric, isn't it? And I think that that's been tested over and over again, and it just doesn't work. You know, um, when you introduce more chaos into a system, all you get is a more chaotic system. You mm -hmm. don't, there is no phoenix rising from the ashes. There is no, I mean, how would that even work is my question. Like, so everybody wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what, we really screwed the pooch on this one, right? <laughs> right. Maybe we took this too far. What's the next step? I don't know. I doubt they know, and these are incompetent people. They, you know, they they don't they can't they can't make decisions for themselves that work. How are they going to decide in this sort of speculative way on mm -hmm. what the next steps are? I don't think that there's enough competency for that. Um, and certainly, who who would be the person to fix things? That that question is there's nobody. You still need a leader. Well, they have a leader. They've got Rush Limbaugh. His contract uh, is coming up at the end of this uh, at the end of this year. Uh, he could leave right, and and it probably won't be renewed by uh, uh, Clear Channel now, now calling themselves iHeartRadio. Uh, maybe he'll step forward and be. I mean, this is one of the problems I think uh, with with Bartlett's contention that Trump would uh, be such a disaster. Well, there's a few problems, and I, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, Amanda. Uh, one. Um, you know, Republicans have been calling for a true conservative for years. If only they, you know, we would stop nominating John McCain and, and Bob Dole and uh, Mitt Romney, these middle of the roaders. Uh, if we named a true conservative, then America would show how much they love conservatism. Well, if Donald Trump runs and loses... Won't they say that, well, he was not a real conservative, he was in favor of, you know, universal health care, he was in favor of Planned Parenthood, all of that? Wouldn't Bartlett's theory work better if Ted Cruz were the nominee and then if Ted Cruz lost? Nobody's going to uh, contest the, the fact that uh, Ted Cruz is a real conservative. Yeah, I mean, that seems like it would be the case, though I would point out that I always thought Mitt Romney met the true conservative, like, test, and that just wasn't enough. You know, I think that the problem with those sorts of arguments for the people that are making them is that they are stating what they wish were true. And so, you know, mm -hmm. this, it is the, like, our ideology can never fail, it can only be failed mentality, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's... So... 
that argument will always get trotted out no matter what, and I don't think it has any relationship to reality. You know, we all know that, obviously, Americans don't like conservatives, um, that the majority of Americans are not conservatives. They are especially not rigid, rock-rigid right-wing ideologues of the sort that the Republican Party has become very accustomed to treating as their standard-bearers right mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that... There is no way that the Republican Party, as it stands right now, is willing to accept the reality. I mean, I think that there are some people in the actual party, like, management, like the Reince Priebus sort, mm-hmm. that see this, but, like, they their authority is pretty limited. You know, they can tell all these conservatives who make up the vast majority of the party that they need to, like, somehow be a little bit more moderate, but I don't think that that's ever going to to play with them. But what they're going to do, the most that they're going to do is try to find some way to bamboozle the public into thinking that they're not the conservatives that they are, which uh, I don't think that that's as possible as it even used to be even in 2000 when George W. Bush ran that kind of campaign. You know, I hear uh, I hear Dems, uh, Democrats who are just giddy over the idea of, uh, well, two things. They're giddy over the idea of a Donald Trump uh, n- n- nomination, and I think they should be careful what they wish for. Well, actually, let me talk about that point, and then I'll, I'll hit you with the other question before we go. Uh, so when it comes to Donald Trump, I think, uh, you know, that— He's going to do one hell of a job against Hillary Clinton if she becomes the nominee. And now it it looks like that is most likely the case in any case. If she wins the nomination, uh, he'll take her on in a way that he took on his GOP opponents and took them down. Uh, That's a concern. And a well-timed terror attack might completely change the math of a... Hillary versus Trump uh, contest this fall. Uh, do you think that uh, Democrats are overstating uh, their their joy in the idea of Donald Trump becoming the nominee? No, I think I disagree. I think mm-hmm. that he will be easy to beat. I think he'll be easy for Clinton to beat. I think that the strategies that work to win Republicans over do not win work. To, he can't. He can't get half of Republicans. I don't think that somebody who is so repulsive that he can't get half of Republicans is really going to be Hillary Clinton, who has high unfavorables right now, but I expect that's going to turn around in the summer. It usually does for the Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that she's going to feel like the safe option, and, and I give it, you know, a terror attack or something terrible could happen that could change everything, but, you know, on the flip side, I think it's, equally, if not more likely, that Donald Trump, who, you know, his vow to stop calling Ted Cruz Lion Ted lasted, what, two days? <laughs> right, right. You know, I think, I, I've, I've joked that I give it even odds that he calls her a misogynist slur word before this is all uh, over, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're right, it, it, and, and he probably will. And But you know what, in, in these United States... It could work for him. I don't know. Uh, Amanda Mark, got, uh, got a minute or so left here. I hear Democrats similarly giddy uh, over the idea. And even I, I'm guilty. You know, we're playing crazy train. We're having a good time with this. Uh, but, you know, I hear Democrats about the idea. They're, they're, they're delighted about a broken, dysfunctional GOP. But I have argued 
that a broken Republican Party really is not ultimately good for Democrats or good for progressivism for a number of reasons. I, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Would Would you like to see a healthy Republican Party or or do you prefer the 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 crazy uh, the crazy train that we're on now? That's a that's a sticky widget of a question. I I think you're welcome. Ultimately, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather have a, a healthy Republican Party, but I just find that is one that's not married to this rigid right wing ideology because I think that the the dysfunction of the party and their ideological purity obsession is tied all together, right? Mm-hmm. One, the the latter made the 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 ideal the ideological obsession has made the dysfunction inevitable. But yeah, obviously, I would prefer a Republican Party that was competent and willing to work in the government as it is. You know, for instance, we really need a Supreme Court nominee to be, you know, Mm -hmm. confirmed. And right now, you know, they won't do that. You know, they can't do that. They're so tied to this, this, this fear of ever being seen as compromising this ridiculous purist ideology that they have that there's never going to be any movement on this. And I think that's ultimately a disaster for the country. And it's not like they're going to go away. So, you know, that would be my hope, but I don't, see any way that the party as it currently exists and its current priorities could ever become that again well the uh well that's that's dispiriting and you're probably right but uh but i think you know mentioning the supreme court that that kind of underscores the argument that i was that i have been making which is that when you have a dysfunctional republican party the democratic party sort of moves right to fill that vacuum in, in one sense. Uh, you know, and I think that uh, the nomination, for example, of Merrick Garland kind of underscores that. You know, you had a Republican Party said, we're not going to nominate anybody. I mean, we're not going to, you know, look at any nomination, no matter who it is that uh, President Obama chooses. And so Obama goes and chooses someone like Merrick Garland, who's kind of middle of the road, you know, at best. He's, he's certainly not a, a flaming liberal. He's very middle of the road. He's arguably uh, to the right on, on a number of points. And if there was a healthy Republican Party, I think that Obama would have, you know, fought for a more progressive candidate. And I think that's, I feel like that's true across the party, that they would, you know, if they had some opposition they would argue more for progressive policies. Instead, they they tend to move towards the middle, towards the right. Does that make sense? And and do you agree with that in any sense? Yeah, no, that's a very persuasive argument. I th- I think that right now the Democrats um, are in this interesting situation where they have to represent not just the liberals of the country, but all of the moderates, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, not, right. that is not a good situation for a party to have. It would be nice if the moderates could be sprinkled against, across both. Yep. And, uh, well, we might as well end there. If Amanda Marcotte agrees that uh, I've made a persuasive argument, that's a great place for me to get out. Uh, Amanda Marcotte, politics writer for Salon. Uh, check out her work there. Uh, damn near every day, it seems like. And also on the Twitters at Amanda Marcotte. Uh, Amanda, gr- great talking with you. I uh, hope you'll join us again in the future. That was great. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda Marcotte. Check out her story at Salon. They have no idea what to do. The GOP lacks basic competence. Just look at Kasich and Cruz's brilliant plan to deny Trump the nomination. 
What a headline. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Bernie Sanders is a dreamer. That's what we've been told. That's what we've been told that the things he's calling for are just impossible. They are just too big. They can't happen. We can't think that big in this country. It's not realistic. We can't really change the world. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, I was, I, I, I've been in uh, the past few days this conversation with a bunch of progressives on a, on a mailing list that I'm on. Uh, following, uh, we had John Opdyke on uh, last week uh, talking about uh, the primary system and how it he believes it needs to change. This idea of closed uh, primaries like we saw in New York recently, uh, which shut out a huge like 30 percent of the uh, uh, the population of the state of New York could not participate in that because they had to change their party affiliation by last October 9th in order to participate in the April is October 9, 2015. You had to change your party affiliation in order to participate in the April 19th, 2016 presidential primary. It's insane. And it's basically meant uh, to keep people out, to keep out independents, to keep out uh, people from the other major party from coming in and, uh, you know, wreaking havoc on the Democratic primary. And, monkey wrenching. Yeah, exactly. And the same with the keep out Democrats from coming in and monkey wrenching the Republican primary, which apparently needs no monkey wrenching. They're doing just fine yes, all by themselves. Yes, they are. <laughs> and so I was, you know, speaking with these are a bunch of progressives. And you know, the, the argument that some of them were putting forward is, well, we need to keep it as it is. We can't change the system. We've got a two-party system in this country. We just have to get used to it. There's nothing we can do to change it. It's been that way for so long. You know, and people just have to change their party affiliation if they want to participate in a closed primary. Now, the idea that John Opdyke on this program from uh, the open uh, primaries movement, openprimaries.org, was talking about, you know, how unfair that is when, in fact, you're using public resources to run a primary. For a private club. For a private club that, you know, many, many people, millions of people in New York, for example, can't participate in it. Now, it is true there was a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters specifically, and I don't even know if John Opdyke is one, but who, you know, were very upset about the closed primary process. But the, the, the larger idea was we were talking about, you know, big ideas, how to change the system for the better. And uh, I was surprised, actually, to hear from a lot of these progressives that we need to just leave things as they are. People need to get used to it. We've got a two-party duopoly in this country. That's that. Now, of course, a lot of those people, I think, were Hillary Clinton supporters. But taking the partisanship out of this, this idea of, you know, thinking big and that we can't do it anymore in this country. And that's essentially been the argument that. Uh, Hillary Clinton has been making in favor of incrementalism over big progressive ideas like those that Bernie Sanders has been calling for. She's saying, no, we can't do those. We can improve on what we have and slowly move forward. And so far, uh, voters, at least in the uh, Democratic Party primaries and caucuses overall, have preferred, it seems, her incrementalism over thinking big. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders was asked about exactly that um, by, uh, was it Chris Cuomo? Chris Cuomo on on CNN. uh, CNN. Uh, I think this was right before the uh, New York primary last week. How big a problem do you think it is that people don't think, that group of voters that you want, who don't think Bernie can't get it done? I know he believes it. It sounds great, but he can't break up those banks. He can't get free college. It's too hard, or he can't pay for it. Well, let me respond in this way. If you and I were sitting here and uh, five years ago, not a long time, and I say, Chris, you know, I think the $7.25 federal minimum wage is a starvation wage. we got to raise it to 15 bucks an hour. I was talking to you five years ago. You were saying that. <laughs> but most people would have thought that that was a crazy idea, right? Fair enough. You want to double the minimum wage. Well, guess what? California, New York, Los Angeles, Oregon have done it. Why? Because people stood up and fought for a $15 an hour wage and appealed to the conscience of the American people. Second point, gay marriage. You are, and I were here 10 years ago. Would you have believed, honestly, that gay marriage would be legal now in 50 states in this country? Probably not. I would not have. But what happens when people stand up and say, we've got to end bigotry in America? People have a right to love whomever. Change takes place when people stand up and fight for change. That is the kernel, the heart of what this campaign is about. And I believe everything that we're talking about, nothing is radical. These ideas exist in other countries. They have existed in the United States. When you were a kid, how much did it cost to go to City University? It was virtually... Tw- under under $1,000. There you go. Virtually tuition-free. Why, if we could do it 30, 40, 50 years ago, can't we do it in America today? Mm-hmm. We can. But what the truth is, is that the people on top have enormous economic and political power. I'm trying to change that dynamic. Yes, he is. And uh, he, he may only have one last chance. On Tuesday, voters go to the polls in uh, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, Connecticut. We'll see how big those voters uh, wish to think. Uh, Right now, Hillary Clinton, I believe, is leading in all five of those states. Uh, But in the meantime, Joe Biden uh, seems to indicate, at least with uh, some comments late last week, that uh, he kind of agrees with Bernie Sanders that we ought to think big. He said, I like the idea of saying we can do much more because we can. Biden told this to The New York Times aboard an Amtrak train in an interview that was published on Thursday when he was asked about Clinton's realism. He said, I don't think any Democrats ever won saying we can't think big. We ought to really downsize here because it's not realistic. Biden added that uh, in the paper uh, in a mocking tone, he said, come on, man, this is the Democratic Party. I'm not part of the party that says, well, we can't do it. So I don't know. I don't think that's an endorsement for Bernie Sanders, uh, but it's certainly an endorsement for thinking big. And uh, in this race, uh, on the Democratic side, at least, it would be Bernie Sanders who seems to be thinking big. Neither uh, Biden nor President Barack Obama have endorsed a presidential candidate. We'll see what the voters of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island have to say uh, when they go to the polls on Tuesday. And if we can make any sense of the results, a couple of those uh, states use completely unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, which I suspect we may be talking about in the in the days ahead. My thanks today to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest, Amanda Marcotte of Salon, and of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we would appreciate a good review. If you want to give us one, drop me a line. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. I'm on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. And that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. 
Good luck, world. Hey,